welcome back to 42 to Doomsday. I'm Mark. I'm definitely Rob. And in this episode, we welcome a guest who hasn't made an appearance on his podcast before. And he's not stealing our co-host. He's a curator of Australia's uh, second most popular Doctor Who podcast. He's broadcasting to his live from Sydney, where the coffee is never as good as Melbourne. To Doctor Who show, Rob Golden Tonsils Irwin. How are you, sir? Hello. I'm very well. Thank you. Mark, are you saying that he's the John Laws of Australian podcasting? Well, he's not the Alan Jones, is he? <laughs> no. <laughs> I hope not. Let's not touch that. Unlike Alan, who probably <laughs> No, don't, don't. <laughs> Hi, Rob. How's it going? Not bad at all. I've, I've had a busy weekend, but I'm running on adrenaline, so I'm sort of bug-eyed and bushy-tailed. So you haven't had a Sydney coffee then? Very funny. <laughs> I don't drink coffee, Mark. What, what's the thing about Sydney coffee? It's just not as good as Melbourne's. But it's the same, isn't it? No, it's not. It, the water is different oh, in Melbourne. Oh, okay. Sydney. So it's the water. And it's at Melbourne's sass and the hipsters with you know the over headphones that they're it's, wearing and the turntables. It's literally something in the water. Is that right? It's, it's apparently the water. It's apparently the beans come from a different place altogether. They're roasted in a different way, apparently. It's, it's you know... <laughs> it's a wonderful, magical place. <laughs> apparently. <laughs> I, I think Mark's had far too much coffee, to be honest. As a qualified home barista, I can say it with authority. <laughs> Very good. Welcome anyway. Rob, it's lovely to have you on. Thank you. Thank you. I've wanted to be on for a long time, so I'm, I'm pleased to be here. Look, the check is cleared, so we're more than happy to have you on. <laughs> good, good. Good to hear. So, the Doctor Who show, how's it going? It's going very well. We've just put out the uh, the 10th episode. It's only a monthly show, so we've been doing it almost a year. Uh, 10 episodes are out. But probably the most interesting thing about it recently is I've started to deconstruct it, pull it all apart and throw all the individual segments on onto our feed as uh, their own shows essentially so people don't have to wait uh, a month to hear a two two and a half hour show they can uh, pick up a 10 minute segment here a half an hour segment there uh, across a whole month so still the same content but just delivered a bit differently of late it's actually good you read on the train and get the feed updated from you guys like oh i can have that one or i'll have that one i'll listen to that later so i think it's a great idea chunking it down that's why i called you the great curator oh thank you very much I, I like the sound of that. It's a mix and match sort of uh, magazine show, isn't it? You can, if you don't want to listen to that topic, you can move on to something else, and it's it's much more easier to handle than a big chunk of you know two two and a half hours, isn't it? Yeah, and I mean, even when we did the two and a half hour shows, we had really detailed show notes, so you could go off. I don't want to listen to that now. I'll skip forward. So it wasn't too hard to manage, but I think this is just a bit better, you know, because uh, it's it comes from my own life when I would look at my own podcast list and I'd see a half an hour show and a two hour show and I was driving to work I think well I'll listen to that half an hour one first so uh, you know it's just trial and error and uh, at first I thought I had the magazine show format down but now I think it's uh, I think it this might be the way ahead so you've done the comic show then you've done who was have you found that the audience has actually carried along uh, as you've moved into different podcasts? Yeah, some of it definitely has. Some people who originally listened to the comic book show are still with me. Um, people who listen to Who Wars are still with me. Half the team who are on Who Wars are still with me. So it's it's kind of picked up new people, lost some people along the way. I mean, obviously, when we lost the Star Wars content, we, we would have lost uh, a lot of listeners, but we've picked other listeners up. So it's it, it's interesting, you know, because Star Wars and Doctor Who are pretty mainstream, so you, you generally find there's crossover between people. Which fandoms were Star Wars or Doctor Who? Star Wars. Really? That's why I gave it up. Uh, you know, I, I talked a bit about this on the shows when we were closing down Who Wars. I, I didn't go too deep, however, but it just, I don't know. There's something about the fandom there and the way the, the movies get discussed and with what Disney's doing with it at the moment, they've they've uh, taken a lot of the extended universe novels and said these never happened and it all just started to become very weird and confusing and I thought 
this isn't really the, the Star Wars I grew up with. And I guess in some ways people could say that about Doctor Who. You know, you could turn that on its head and some people might say today's Doctor Who isn't the Doctor Who they grew up with. But I don't know, there's still something about Doctor Who. It still feels small, even though it's viewed all around the world. It still feels like a cottage industry sometimes compared to something like Star Wars. And I think I like that kind of thing, you know, without trying to sound all hipster about it. Have you grown a beard yet? Not yet. <laughs> no. It'd be mostly grey if I did, but so... <laughs> As, as I'm finding yeah. out at the moment. Are you looking forward to Rogue One? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, like the individual films as, as just events, you know, to go along, eat some popcorn, watch the film, enjoy myself. Yeah, great. I'm, I'm just not as invested anymore as a, as a fan. In fact, recently, uh, I'm working with someone now at work whose young son likes Star Wars, and I've been thinking, I might ask her if he'd like all my books and stuff and just take them into work and give them away. I'm, I'm, I'm at that stage. Which is, you know, really odd. You know, if if I think of myself as a fan five years ago, ten years ago, I would have never considered that in a million years. Is that the Disney effect? Do you think, or is it just that you just grown out of it? I think it is Disney to some degree, but that gives people the wrong impression when they hear it. It's like I'm rallying against the big corporation. I think Disney's done wonderful things to it. I think they've brought in a lot of money. I think they've thrown a lot of resources at it, and I think they're giving the fans what they want. Whereas with Lucas in charge, he wanted to tell his story, no matter what the fans might have wanted. So. You know, uh, they're doing good things with it and they're pushing it forward and it's going to be mega for the next 50, 100 years. That's great, but maybe it's it's just not for me. But that's the problem when they start pandering to f- the fans too much. They lose sight of the general general audience. So, you know, potentially another three or five films' time, you could end up with their version of Attack of the Cybermen. Well, <laughs> well you, never, you never know. Is it the thing that Stephen Moffat is facing, that he's perhaps pandering to the fans a little bit too much with, with Capaldi and his approach, or...? Just to take it right off topic. It's interesting. I think he's he's a little different insofar as I think he might listen to his kids a bit too much. Like, oh, what, what's hot in the playground, kids? And then writes about that. You know, he often mentions how he uses his kids as sounding boards. Really? Yes. Oh dear. Is that his writing room, is it? <laughs> I think it has been. I think it has been. You know, yeah. so e- even this, this Christmas special with, you know, you see the videos like, oh, superheroes are great. Superheroes are hot. You know, we'll, we'll do a superhero. Well, no, that sounds horrible. I'm not looking forward to that at all. It's a bit like that punk episode of The Goodies where it come out a couple of years or a year or so, you know, after the the, the peak of the punk uh, era. Mm. I, I think uh, uh, Moffat is similar in that he's gone for the superhero thing, but we've, we're probably on the downside a little bit now of the whole Marvel DC movie, uh, superhero movies. If he's trying to compete with the Marvel Universe on television, then, I mean, obviously he can't compete, but he's probably just saying, look, I'll have a little bit of that as well. Yeah, I think so. I th- I, I think his time has been marked by just trying to appeal to a to a younger audience even though he's told more complex stories perhaps than Russell T mm. Davies quite paradoxically <laughs> you know yeah. he's appealing to younger kids with more complex stuff that's, that's kind of weird so what do you think of the current state of the show I'm oh, looking forward to series 10 and seeing what they can do with it I think it's going to be more goofy and more silly but I've, I've got an open mind about it you know I don't think Matt Lucas is in all the episodes that's a good thing uh, the new companion could be interesting. I approach every series with with an open mind, you know. And and if it all all is for naught, then there's always another series after that, possibly with a new Doctor as well. So, you know, it's only a year. All right, you, Rob. Uh, is it Nardle, the the bald headed fellow from um, the Christmas special last year? I'm really looking forward to seeing him. <laughs> really? No, no, no. I'm being sarcastic. I actually haven't given any thought to um, uh, the next series of, of Doctor Who. Uh, 
no, nothing at all, really. Nothing. I've, I've been obsessed with the Omni Rumor for far too long, and that's just warped me. I can't look ahead. Uh, I can only look backwards. So No, I'm not looking. I, I There's nothing that I've heard, and, and to be frank, I haven't actually sorted out uh, in terms of what's coming up next year. Uh, I Probably, if I'm interested in anything, it's, it's seeing how the handover between Moffat and... Um, Chibnall uh, is takes effect, you know, whether whether Capaldi stays or, or how the handover is, is uh, you know, comes to fruition. You know what I think is going to be interesting when you look at the schedule this year. They made a, a lot of lot of episodes, then they did their Christmas episode. Now they're making the the back half of the series at this time of year. With Chibnall coming in, but Moffat still doing Christmas, it means Chibnall's going to make half a series. Then Moffat's going to end up in the studio making Christmas. And then Chibnall's going to come back and make the other half of the series. So they're, they're actually going to cross over in a way that I don't think showrunners ever really have before. Have you guys thought about that? No, that's actually too deep for us. <laughs> no. If our audience wants um, analysis, they're going to have to pony up for a Patreon account. So, uh, Number one. <laughs> <laughs> How much a month? Five bucks? Ten bucks? Uh, well, five for, you know, for five minutes worth of analysis. Ten dollars for ten minutes. That sort of thing. You know. That actually doesn't sound very enthusiastic. Uh, well, I, I mean, certainly I want... The, you want it to succeed because there, there are lots and lots of fans out there who genuinely love and embrace the, uh, the, the new series. Um, so, you know, you hope, you hope it sort of Moffat isn't at the fag... Really at the fag end of his, his time and is feeling it and the shows and the scripts. So, and if Capaldi is going to leave... You want it to be on a high. You don't want it to sort of be on a sort of, you know... Matt Smith style. I want Capaldi to stay another year. Well, that's the fascinating thing, isn't it? I mean, if he if he if he's prepared to stay, it's interesting to see how Chibnall handles that. Yeah, it'd be a really interesting transition because this will be the first time where a doctor has moved across with a new showrunner. So I'd love to see a year with Chibnall and Capaldi and see what could happen. For mine, uh, going into this new series and not being up for it could be a positive it means i'm not you know anticipating anything so i could be pleasantly surprised i I still don't think i will be but that's the possibility of that while there's life there's hope rob exactly right now the main topic for this podcast uh, will be a discussion about what stories do we think are typical of a particular era of the show not the best necessarily not the worst necessarily but the story that exemplifies that particular era. And Mark, I believe we're going to be looking at it by Doctor by Doctor, is that right? That's exactly it. And uh, like what we do with our top five uh, shows, which I know Rob Irwin uh, particularly enjoys. Love them. Thank you. If we have a story that's the same, one of us will yell out snap. For no good purpose, but we'll just yell it out anyway. And then uh, we'll just go, go from there. So I think it's actually uh, guests on a first. So Rob, not my Rob, the other Rob, would you like to uh, kick off with Mr... Hartnell. This is very hard because when I think of the Hartnell era, I think of historicals primarily. Yeah. But I'm not going to choose a historical. Gosh. I am going. Yeah. I'm going to go with Dalek Invasion of Earth. Snap. Oh, really? Awesome. Dalek Invasion of Earth, the first blockbuster type of story. Would you uh, agree with that? Absolutely, first blockbuster kind of story. It's a Dalek story. It's Dalek mania. It's the classic TARDIS crew for the last time. Mm. It it just you know shouts Hartnell to me big time. I, I was thinking about the overall topic, and I came to the realization that within say the first six or seven Doctors, the first the classic era, basically, there's such a wide variety in um, storytelling 
that I've picked a couple of uh, because you got you get, you get to change a producer more or less. I've gone with the Aztecs as a as a, a typical historical and and Dalek invasion of Earth as as a, as a sort of a typical science fiction story for the show. Look, Rob's exactly right. It is it is it it. It's Doctor Who dealing with the, the sort of um, you know uh, a World War Two analog, the Daleks being Nazis, the Robo Robo Men being sort of you know uh, British black black shirts. It has the classic era crew, and it it just feels like what Hartnell Doctor Who is all about. I mean, what comes later with the the Wiles era, and the, and the sort of the tail end with Innes Lloyd and and, and Jerry Davis, sort of more properly belongs to the, well, especially that those last two properly belongs to the Second Doctor. But in terms of um, Hartnell, the Aztecs, I think, is 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 prime historical. Uh, it's not as long as as Marco Polo, so it sort of doesn't drag as long as the actual journey itself. <laughs> but 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 it, it is it is a it is a, an interesting and it fulfills the show's historical remit, the educational aspect. It's it's a completely different culture. Um, it's the you know it's the Doctor and the companions sort of interacting with a, with an alien culture. Uh, and the Dalek invasion of Earth is just that sort of that you know the, the blockbuster, as you said, and the and the, and the um, it sort of marries up that sort of apoc- you know disaster film with a sort of a, a bit of a morality play about sort of you know collaborate collaboration and all that sort of thing. So I found those two to be more typical of the Hartnell era than anything else. The interesting thing about the historicals is that uh, Marco Polo and the Aztecs are quite traditional in its storytelling, and say season two when you got the Romans, it turns into almost a farce. Mm. And then on season three, we've got the massacre, which is very, very bleak. No, I mean, if you look at the Aztecs, it's it's a story about a society that bases its um, its religion on on blood sacrifice. So it's it's just as bleak. Um, if you saw that Mel Gibson movie, I think it's Apocalypto or Apocalypso, where it's that that slave escaping. I mean, you, you get to see what you know, sort of a. a a PG version of, it. but you get to see, you know, what, what the Aztec society was really like. I thought you were going to say Lethal Weapon then. <laughs> what is it? The Beaver? Perhaps the Beaver is the, the, <laughs> the Beaver. The typical Mel Gibson movie. I've got to say, I saw about the last thirty minutes of Apocalypto a few uh, weeks ago on telly, and I thought this looks really good. I've never seen it, the full thing, but there was this just this big chase in the rain at the end. These two guys beating the hell out of each other. I mm. thought this looks great. I will have to catch up with that at some stage. Say what you want about latter-day Mel Gibson and his views, etc., etc., which my lawyers have said not to comment on directly. But he is a very good filmmaker. He is a very good filmmaker. So, And I'm actually looking forward to uh, that new one. Is it um, something Ridge or... Mm, Hacksaw Ridge. Hacksaw Ridge. We've wandered way off topic there. Mark, what are your typical stories for the story for the Hartnell era? I actually was going to put down Dalek Invasion of Earth, as I said before, the first sort of blockbuster but then I thought, well, there weren't too many, apart from Dalek Master Plan, other sort of blockbusters in that e- era. So I actually went for something a bit smaller, went for the rescue. Mm. Mainly because, I think, as Rob said before, not my Rob, the other Rob, uh, the Hartnell era is so varied and nothing can be sort of described as typical, as it were. But I just thought, in terms of the rescue, it's actually, as a story, very, very low key, sort of like the Space Museum, but good. <laughs> In terms of what well, the interesting thing for me is actually is a transition. You sort of said, you know, from the old Titus team to the new. And I think it actually handles it quite well. Much better than what it did with the later companion exits, Hi There, Dodo, and, and things like that. So I think in terms of storytelling, I think the rescue is much more uh, straight down the line almost. It's not dull, but it's sort of that whole... The way it's written is quite um, representative, I think, in, in some cases of the Hartnell era. 
I agree. I was also going to say the Dalek invasion of Earth. I mean, I think during the Hartnell era, they're trying to replicate Dalek mania with you know the Daleks, and I think to do that to give it a, a new spin, they've actually brought the Daleks to a nearly recognisable London, and I, I think in that regard, it, it, it's it's typical that the Hartnell of an era that is you know uh, peppered with Daleks. Um, uh, as exemplified in the Dalek invasion of Earth. And what about for uh, Mr. Troughton, whose debut was yesterday, 50 years ago yesterday? How quick's that gone, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I, I can't say literally in the blinking of an eye, but uh, if you were born 50 years ago, it probably feels like that. <laughs> it's about as quick as what the Omni Remnant will be resolved. But uh, has anybody seen Power yet? The clips or anything like that? Anybody said you've seen an episode yet? Not an actual episode, no. But clips, for sure, yeah. The place has been full of clips. What do you guys think about the uh, the colour announcement? Oh, it's neither here nor there. It's not It's not like it's Ted Turner recolouring, uh, say, the Maltese Falcon. I mean, the Maltese Falcon exists, so that's that's good. <laughs> You've always got a black and white version of that. As, as, for the, as for power, well, you know, clearly it no longer exists. So whatever version they want to come out with, whatever version BBC America believes is more amenable to their particular market, you know, no one can stand black and white. Uh, if it's a colour version, great. I mean, I, I believe the Blu-ray uh, will have the black and white and the colour version on it. So you choose your poison, basically. At least they're giving you the option, right? So it's not like George Lucas saying, you're going to get the special edition of uh, Return of the Jedi and that's all you're going to get. At least they're giving you an option. We're right off topic. Now, what do people think about how it, the the announcement of the Blu-ray has been handled? Because previously you could only get it if you were, you know, you, you sort of went through the BBC store. And then they announced that there was going to be a DVD. And then now they've announced there's going to be a Blu-ray, which I, I, I read yesterday that the Blu-ray will contain the DVD and the Blu-ray version. Is that Am I wrong there? That's interesting. And if that's the case, why would you be cannibalising your sales? Because I'm not... I mean, obviously I have no access to the BBC store. That's fine. I'm not now not going to buy the DVD. I'm prepared to wait until early next year for the Blu-ray. We'll buy it once. That's that's all. Well, seems a very strange way to run your business. At least they're telling you though that there is a Blu-ray version, and they're not uh, they're not sort of uh, putting it on you when you just shelled out for twelve quid and said I bought the DVD, and then two weeks later they're saying oh the Blu-ray's coming out in February, whatever it is. So when the announcement came through, I cancelled my order on Amazon and uh, pre-ordered the Blu-ray instead. So like you, I'm happy to wait. I just want to buy things once these days. I'd be similar, but I've I've ordered off Annika Wills to do a signed uh, DVD, so I can't take the money back. Oh, well, not okay. very easily anyway, so I won't be doing that. But I, I would if it was just an Amazon order for sure. If you hold an autograph to a mirror, it'll give you the address of a location in Wigan where you can actually go and see the real film. Is that right? I'll try that when it comes. How long have you been working on that one, Mark? <laughs> Instantaneous, Rob. That's how I roll. Oh, love it. Very nice. Very nice. Before we go on, one more thing. With the colour version, there's a guy uh, on one of the Facebook groups I belong to saying that the people who coloured it aren't the people who actually made it. Correct. Right, so that is true. Okay, because I was saying to him, are you sure? Like, I thought it might have been made in colour and then grayscaled or something. It seems very expensive to colourise something that's already been made in grayscale, but apparently that's the case. I think that came out at the press conference uh, uh, at the BFI screening of the first few episodes. That um, yes, they uh, BBC America partway through the process said they wanted a colour version and they would do it themselves. Wow! Apparently they got uh, as a Jan Lee her hair colour wrong. Apparently it's supposed to be red and now it's brown. Oh dear. <laughs> okay, well that's that's stunning, a stunning revelation there, Mark. Thanks for that. 
<laughs> just so that you guys know. All right, can we, I, really, I really couldn't give a crap personally. Well, okay, uh, now, but some people will. Uh, we'll make the same noise as you do when you're riding the gears. Uh, let's move it back to uh, our actual discussion. <laughs> uh, Mr. Irwin, um, yes. what is your typical Second Doctor story? This is really tricky, um, given that so much is missing and so we're more familiar with some stories than others in, in general. When I think of Trout and I think of Base Under Siege... I think of Cybermen popping up so many times that Pertwee didn't get a crack at them. I think of Jamie. And when I bring a few of those things together, I think maybe Tomb of the Cybermen, but probably more appropriately the Moonbase. Snap. Yay. That's you're going to go for uh, Tomb as well, but really, it's a retread of the Moonbase, which was a retread of the 10th planet, so... (laughs) Yes, I think uh, Season 4 and Season 5 is all based on the Siege, isn't it, for the most part? And uh, I think the Moonbase encapsulates that uh, the best for me, even though the, the animation is more like a manga video, but that's okay. Yeah. Enemy of the World exemplifies that rare uh, template for the second Doctor of Caravan Under Siege. <laughs> <laughs> I am literally here all week, folks. Oh, Try the Christ. veal. <laughs> <laughs> but but as well as Base Under Siege, as I said, Cybermen too. I think just as we think of Hartnell and Dalek Mania, I mean, Troutman and Cybermen just go together like, you know ham and eggs or anything else that goes together green eggs and ham that's it i understand why they've gone for the cybermen because trout and small and they're they're, they're quite you know they loom they loom in every scene so it it looks good the two of them compared to one another and they look so impressive don't they the 60s cybermen look the blank faces and the height on them this looks so impressive in black and white Absolutely agree. Trouton era is, is, as Rob said, is is a, is a is hard to pin down because season four is basically gone. So allegedly, I think the release of uh, Power of the Daleks on uh, as an animated feature means that Power of the Daleks doesn't exist. While there's life, there's hope. It's dead and buried. <laughs> um, so even though it is effectively a lot of base under siege stories, it's hard to sort of you know really know what's going on. And season six is a bit of an odd, you know, it's a bit of a, a, a an omni shambles really, and sort of them scrambling to get stories together uh i went with tomb of the cybermen i mean if it's a distillation or if it's a you know a retread of the moon base which is a retread of the 10th planet then i would suggest that it is a, the pure distillation of that very base under siege idea rob's right it's got jamie it's got the doctor it's got the cybermen it's it's a base it's literally under siege from within uh it's one of the better uh, trout and stories and it just it just hits all those notes for me as being something exemplary an exemplar of that era i don't think season six is that bad i really like it because they're running on empty and they're scrambling for anything i just like how one week it's I mean, dominoes aside it's a mind robber then we go back to the invasion which is more of a traditional tale and then crotons the season six isn't as bad as what uh, I think you make out. When I say omni shambles, uh, I'm just sort of saying that the back room shenanigans oh, okay. that were going on, not necessarily the quality. I will say that if it was more, the season tilted more to stories like Invasion and less to stories like, say, the Crotons or the Space Pirates, then it would probably would have a better reputation. But uh, needs must when there's a lot of uh, problems in the in the in the back rooms, I suppose. What's our entry for JP? Well, for me, and again, I'm I'm doing this with each of the the eras. I, I think you know who's the the sort of classic companion. I think of Joe Grant. I think of Pertwee. I think of Unit. I think of longer stories. And if I throw them all up in the air, my my probably absolute fantasy Pertwee story is probably something like the Damons or the Demons, depending on who you are. The, one of the overrated stories I called out in our last podcast. Mm. <laughs> Gasp. 
You said yes. they didn't have to be the best stories, but just, you know, indicative of the era. And I think that just has everything in it, including the kitchen sink. It's got the motifs, hasn't it, of that era in one story. I actually went for Claws of Axos. Okay. Have you been drinking? <laughs> no more than normal. Carry on. For the same sort of reasons Rob mentioned. It's got the unit, it's got the master, it's got Joe Grant, and the whole premise of Monster of the Week or Monster of the Fortnight invading Earth, if you look at it at a, a storytelling point of view, it's, it is quite traditional, but also I think in terms of a public perception, would it be memorable? Yes, I think it would be quite memorable, actually. Yes, you could go for things like the Green Death and, yes, the one with the spiders. But I think if you had to say, well, got all the icons all lined up in the row, well, it can't be Day of the Daleks because the Master's not in it. I think Season 8, obviously, but I think for me, in terms of uh, tightly compact storytelling, I think Claws of Axos is it for me. I see the Pertwee era as three distinct eras in a sense i see obviously season seven and then i see eight nine and ten as being one unit and then season 11 as being sort of separate because of just sort of the performance that pertwee brings i'm not going to bring up three stories um i look you i mean i could have gone with the green death uh, it's got all those sort of hallmarks you know sort of anti-business anti-capitalism pro-environment the sort of the morality side of things that the Pertwee era exemplifies. I could have gone with Inferno or Ambassadors of Death from Season 7 because, again, they sort of, for that particular year, they, they, they both touch on corporations and, and meddling with things that you shouldn't be meddling with. In the end, what you were saying before made me change my mind. I've gone with something like The Mind of Evil because, A, it's got unit. Unit before it turns into, you know, sort of a dad's army thing. Uh, it's got the master... It's it's got that sort of worldwide threat that seems to pop up with Doctor Who uh, in the Pertwee era, you know, from week to week, and it sort of feels like a small screen James Bond movie, which you know Pertwee is very much an echo of that. So, uh, the mind of evil for me. Tom Baker. Tom Baker. Seven years to choose from, guys. Mm. Well, when I think companion, I think Sarah Jane, uh, particularly if I'm not going to include her with Pertwee. I think of the more gothic kind of stories because I think they always get pulled out and held up as good examples of Tom I think people also prefer early Tom to older Tom so all of that together I'm going to go for Pyramids of Mars including location shooting on film which I always kind of associate in my mind with the the early Baker era Um, you know just that that lovely film look that you get which (laughs) which then comes crashing down when they go into a, a, (laughs) a, a studio and start shooting on video of course but it just it just ticks all the boxes for me. Um, you know, I could have gone with Brain of Morbius too, but it feels more studio-bound. I think Pyramids of Mars just feels more big and open in some scenes. Has some iconic um, enemies. Uh, the, the mummies crushing that fella. Classic. Yeah, I, I, just, I just have good feelings about that one. Is it your favourite Tom Baker story? I wouldn't say so. I'd, I'd say my favourite Tom Baker story is probably Talons or, you know, or possibly Brain of Morbius, um, something like that. But uh, I think just as a, again, for the sake of this exercise, I, I just seem to be gravitating more towards pyramids for some reason. Well, this was going to shock you, this one. So strap yourself in, lads. Uh, although, as you just said, the, the, the pairing of, of the Doctor and Sarah Jane and the, uh, the, the Hinchcliffe era of the program is very popular amongst the fans. I think in terms of how the public remembers the fourth Doctor the best is the guy with the scarf, the robot dog and the girl in the leotard. Uh, this is going to be a bit controversial, but I actually think the invisible enemy is typical of the uh, storytelling of 
probably more the Gray Williams era, obviously, than, than the earlier era. The big, bold concepts of the Hartnell era sort of come back in this story uh, a bit, although it's, look, it is let down, let's be honest, by the execution. Uh, in a strange way, it is kind of fun. This type of storytelling really sort of clearly resonated with the general public, but not the fans, because the ratings actually in the Williams era just, you know, crept up. Uh, it's sort of, they all say, oh, look, Hinchcliffe had the better ratings, but I think in terms of uh, Williams's story, some of them obviously exceeded uh, Hinchcliffe's, but that's because of obviously the strike and that sort of stuff. I just think in terms of what that middle era of the program was trying to do, I think The Invisible Enemy, so that, that type of story, is probably my example. Have I clearly gone mad? It's a bold choice. Very bold. <laughs> the, the, the Invisible Enemy is personal to me because the day or the week my brother was born, I actually bought the novelization and I have a, a strong memory of reading it uh, whilst uh, visiting my mother in hospital. So, um, But yeah, it's a bold choice, Mark, bold. But do you think in terms of the public recognition or, or remembrance of the fourth doctor which mm. how would you think he's best remembered is he as i described before the the guy with the gut the scarf the robot dog and the girl in leotard or think he's remembered in some other way yeah look i think you're you're right i think i probably am thinking with a fan mindset i think yeah canine probably does figure large into a typical baker story in the eyes of the public mm. Uh, so yeah, I, I could actually get behind that concept. I'm not sure I'd pick that same story though. If you look at season 15 though, it's horror, it's a horror and fang rock and image. We don't have K9 in it. So I was just trying to find a, a story with, I don't think Evasion of Time works particularly well. Uh, Underworld, again, let down by execution. But in terms of the idea that Visible Enemy is trying to do, I think that was, that was interesting. Mm. You, you're both going, hmm. Mm. It's like you're going, what are you on about? <laughs> Never start drinking before five o'clock in the afternoon, Mark. That's all I can chin, say. Chin, chin. Yeah. Uh, shall I have my go now? No, not really. No, of course you can, Rob. Okay. Go for it. <laughs> if... <laughs> Crack open a tequila, Rob. Off you go, son. There is actually no... There is physically no alcohol in my house at the moment. Oh, really? There, well, no. I, there might be a small bottle of Cointreau, assuming that's how it's pronounced, somewhere in the back of the pantry, but... Um, when you're when you're into the cooking uh, alcohol, you're in trouble. So, <laughs> if I was tilting towards the latter half of Baker's era, I would go with Invasion of Time, something that is hugely ambitious, written in three days, probably powered by mescaline, but it's completely you know badly executed. Uh, so I won't go. I could go with that, but I'm not. I'm going to go with putting my fan hat on. I'm going to put you know. I'm going to take myself back in time to when I was a boy. I think the story that exemplifies the early, the, the first three years of... Horror Fang Rock. <laughs> no, that's in the fourth year, Mark. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, <laughs> uh, it, it exemplifies the entirety. It's typical of the entirety of the, of the Baker era for me. The Seeds of Doom. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah it's peak Tom Baker. The latter-day Tom Baker is undergraduate uh, humour Tom Baker. It's got Sarah Jane Smith. It's It's got body horror. The, the first three years of... Uh, uh, you know, of the, the Baker era is basically one long journey into the fullness of the body horror trope. Uh, it it is as as Rob was saying, it's a mixture of studio stuff and also film stuff. It's got some wonderful iconic images. You know, it's Keeler in bed. Uh, you know, covered in in, in it, it, you know mid transformation. It's it's Keeler having escaped from the from that 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 that, that, that bungalow sort of thing and charging the Doctor at the end of that um at that cliffhanger. And then of course it's the crinoid in in, in its full bloom, literally over the manor house. You know, basically you know taking on these jets. It's for me, it is. It's it's just that it's a wonderful story. It's fantastic. It's 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 for some for me who's a, who, who thinks that the one of the best horror movies in the world is the thing the 
the uh, the the John Carpenter movie, The Thing. This is one of the best Doctor Who stories for me for those particular you know tropey reasons. It's very Avengers like, isn't it? Really, it's very dark and gritty. Do you think it's a traditional Doctor Who tale? Though? In that particular era, which is is full of gritty stories. I mean, you look at Ark in Space. You see Noah looking at his arm transforming and clubbing it on the console, and you know basically howling his denial to the world at what's happening to him. It's uh, that that that's the, that's Doctor Who for me. That is my strongest memory. That's what I think is typical Doctor Who back then. So yes, I do. Davison then. Davo is hard because season nineteen is so different to the next two. Actually, all three seasons are probably different to each other. So it's it's kind of hard to get a grip on a typical story. Uh, and it's going to be the same for Baker and, and McCoy. I'll preface that already. When I think of Davison, though, I think of a lot of studio bound stuff. I think of his original team. I think of mm, something like Kinder. I think of stories that have... You have stuff in his first season like Ford of Doomsday and Kinder and things that I don't think would have popped up necessarily in other eras. They they have ideas in them and they are presented in a way that I, I just feel was, was a little different and interesting and, and it makes his era stand out because if we're trying to find something that makes it stand out it's not that he had a lot of Cybermen stories or he had a lot of base under siege stories or a lot of dalek stories you know it's it's the style of story i think that kinder tells um was kind of new i think for the show you know you you may disagree um and that would be good we can talk about that but uh it's not my favourite story of his era, but it's certainly the one I, I will pick here. In that season, it sort of sticks out, doesn't it, really? It's a, it's the oddball. Remember the, the, the phrase oddball was bandied around uh, to describe stories of the McCoy era, but that was certainly the oddball of that season. And I hated it as a kid. When it used to come on TV, go, oh, that's bloody kinder. I hated it. And now I think it's it's absolutely fantastic. So really, it's, it's a story that matures with the viewer definitely but you know i think the first three stories of season 19 are oddball you know castro valve is bloody weird <laughs> yeah you know <laughs> for for to doomsday is weird kinder is weird but then you get to the something like the visitation that's very traditional black mm. orchid super traditional earth shock well that's different again and then time fly well the least said about that the better but i think i think the first three stories are all kind of weird and and interesting and trying to do different things because those three i don't think were commissioned by sayward at all so um that's why it's, it's so diverse i actually went for arc of infinity i think it starts a trend of unfortunately it's a the simplistic storytelling approach and it also started the uh we're going to smash the program's folklore across your face mm. if you look at stories in the fifth doctor's era that are really fondly re- remembered by the fans the stories that go against the grain, like, uh, for example, Caves, obviously, Phronios, Enlightenment. But, you know, these are exceptions, really, because then if you look at the rest of the year, you've got stories which are like, you know, like Ark, King's Demons, Warriors of the Deep, Resurrection of Daleks. Those type of stories make up the Davison era, and they're the more traditional stories where they just really don't go anywhere. Mm. You know what I mean? They just go, just plot along, and, that's, and, and they finish. Where you can even look at stories at Terminus where... The concepts, again, are interesting. It's just that the way it's executed is as dull as dishwater. So, yeah, I'd probably go for Arco Infinity because I think that was the beginning of when the rot was really starting to set in. I would say back on uh, Rob's choice of story, I think uh, one way to sort of find a typical story is for a particular era is could you see another Doctor in that in that story? And for me, 
Kinder, I think it's a purely Davison story. I, I yeah. can't see I can't see Tom Baker in it. He would, you know, if he wasn't in it, he would demolish it completely. It's a it's a, it's a story for a sort of retiring doctor, which is what. For me, anyway, Davison felt like a lot of the time. Yeah, and that, that's what I was kind of getting at when I said I, I couldn't see it in, in earlier eras, you know, or, or indeed with earlier Doctors, of course. So, yeah, yeah, that's right. And what about you, my Rob? Well, I've got two stories in mind, one from either end of that particular era. I could have gone with Visitation because, again, it's got that it's got that classic uh, Davison crew, you know, Adric, Nissa, Tegan. Um, and there's sort of you know there's a bit of bickering and all that sort of thing and 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 you've got the ultimate you know if, if the fifth doctor you sort of talk to fans and, and they say the fifth doctor is one who sort of he as compared to Baker he kept on he seemed to keep on losing you know there was there didn't seem to be as many effective resolutions or victories uh, and if you look at the visitation I mean he's up against the, the forces of history where you know the, the great fire of London is, is is just going to happen regardless of whatever the doctor might do even if it's a sort of a, a sort of tendential ending at the end there but um after all that verbiage my actual choice uh is resurrection of the daleks not because um the entirety of davison's era is full of you know military porn but as as eric (laughs) as eric sayward gets his hooks into the series he moves from being a writer to the script editor I feel that resurrection more exemplifies or is, is, is more typical of the of the era than I think people realize um, because that more than anything else Saywood's Saywood gets his stamp all over um, Davison's era and I think resurrection uh, is, is typical of Saywood's approach it's got the military it's got a bit of body horror I mean that that scene where the character turns around is being affected by affected by that gas is is just typical Saywood sort of trying to channel Holmes. Badly. Badly. And there's just a mass amount of death. I mean, you know, you look at Earthshock, everyone basically dies. Uh, and in Resurrection, again, everyone basically dies. Um, and and you've got a stroppy Tegan who sort of storms off at the very end of it, which sort of, you know, again, is typical of that era. So Resurrection for me. And then they use that story as a template for the next season. Well, I'll get back to that in the Sixth Doctor. ourselves headlong into the Colin Baker era all of two years. Rob, what's your entry into Colin Baker's canon? It's tricky and it's tricky for all of us of course. We may even have some bingos here because uh, there are so few to choose from statistically. <laughs> it's a good chance. Um, and again, not my favourite Baker story but actually one of my more preferred Baker stories is Vengeance on Varos. Oh. No bingos? No. No. Interesting. Okay. We think of the Baker era, we think of Video Nasties, Violence, Vengeance on Varus is, is one of the poster children for that. It's got Perry, who I think is his more classic companion rather than Mel. It's his first series, which all things considered is still better than his second. It's studio based. It's sci-fi it just it just says baker to me i mean but there's not a lot to latch on to so it's very hard you know although the fact you didn't say bingo means you, you must have some other ideas about his era but yeah vengeance on varus for me that uh 10 minute tardis scene at the beginning is bloody awful isn't it when the the tardis stops in space and he's sulky and everything like it's just horrible yeah but there's horrible bits in all of these stories you know when you look down the list 
there's not a whole lot of positives to get out of it. You throw certain, you know, ingredients into a pot, you know, it, it, it might make a nice cake or it might not, even if the ingredients themselves individually might be quite nice. Sometimes it just doesn't work. But, you know, when I look at season 22, I, Revelation isn't, you know, indicative of the, the series. I think that's quite different to a lot of things. You know, Time Lash, is anyone going to pick that? Uh, two Doctors, that's an odd one, you know, and then you're down to three three stories. Mm. For the rest of season 22 so that's why i went for vengeance on varos but i'm interested in what you guys i'm very interested now actually that we didn't get a bingo as to what you might be looking at my choice was actually attack of the Cybermen, but mainly snap for... oh there you go but mainly for the wrong reasons if one story could encapsulate a typical colin baker story that entails everything you know in terms of returning monsters the violence that they've been turned up to 11 and there's just so many continuity references in this story that um, it's almost basting itself on copious amounts of fan glaze, to be perfectly honest. It just, this just represents the worst type of traditional Doctor Who story ever. It just completely disengages the, the general audience. I mean, it's no wonder the audience dropped down by 2 million by the second episodes because you had to bar up on all this fan wank that was being thrown at you. As a 12-year-old, I loved it. But now, when I look at it, it's actually not that great. And And the thing is... I suppose the most disappointing thing about the Colin Baker era is what could have been. And the producer and the script editor weren't preaching from the same hymn book at all. And, you know, in in some instances, The Six Doctors comes across as, as a complete tool. Well, I can only echo that. I mean, Revelation is too good a story to be regarded as typical of the Baker era. The second season, uh, his second season is... Is really is really at variance to that that first series, and if you're talking Colin Baker, I think the the series or the season that is uppermost in fans' mind minds is season 22. Uh, I mean, Attack is full of everything that you've said. It's 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 continuity porn turned up to 11. There is the violence. There's you know there's um. Uh, what's his name? Getting his hands crushed for no good reason. Uh, Lytton, that's right. It, uh, it it's got that sort of disagreeable relationship between the Doctor and Perry, which. <sighs> A lot of that era is, it could have been so much better by just taking, just, you know, changing things by a, a, a certain amount of degrees, you know, changing the dial a little bit. Perry and the Doctor don't have to be antagonists, they can be working together. The violence doesn't need to be as excessive. I mean, Saywood, I don't know what, Saywood couldn't wrangle well, he actually wrote this, didn't he, basically? Yeah, he did, so I won't go down that path. Allegedly. It, yeah. He didn't <laughs> like Colin Baker. He didn't like his casting. If you don't like the person's casting, either leave the series or actually do your job. And he didn't do either of those, and we this is what we're left with. So, anyway, the lawyers, I'm sure, will be contacting me sometime in the near future. No, would be absolutely right, though. If your heart's not in it, then... Don't stay around. You know what I find with the JNT era? If I go in and watch any, and, and especially this era, if I go in and watch a Colin Baker story, in my in the back of my mind is the knowledge that the series was basically shot at this point. And it's, you can't enjoy any of his stories knowing that cancellation uh, is, is, uh, is, is just around the corner and a sort of pathetic uh, resurrection will follow after that. I mean, Trial of the Time Lord, again, is, is just a massive missed opportunity and exemplifies a mindset in the production office where they had no idea what they were doing. Isn't it interesting, mm. though, because survival is really the same. It's the last story of, of the classic series. Yet, when I watch that, actually really, I really like it. It doesn't have that uh, bitterness associated with it, even though the show was gone for 16 years. So Yeah, but it's a story that is confident. It knows what it wants to say. Yeah. It's not caught in a mire of continuity. It, 
you know, McCoy, for all his limitations, is giving a good performance. There's an interesting thing they're doing with Ace. And uh, after 10 or so years, Anthony Ainley actually dials in a, f- a great performance. Uh, it's, it's, you know, it's the strongest end to the series that we could have hoped for given the circumstances. Correct. Absolutely. Anyway, rant over. All right. Speaking of, speaking of McCoy era, uh, Rob, what is your typical seventh Doctor story? This is hard, but it's not as hard as the Colin Baker era because I think aside from Time and the Rani, the three seasons here all seem to feel fairly similar. I think Carmel was quite good in putting a bit of a stamp on it almost from the start. You've got a fair selection of things to choose from here. And again, not choosing my favourite stories, um, I would go for something like Greater Show in the Galaxy. Mm. You know, which I think just has interesting sci-fi concepts. Uh, again, you, you sort of see similarities in Greater Show to, say, Happiness Patrol, for example. I, I see those similarities. Even going back to something like Paradise Towers, even though it's not well realised, you know, I think the, the concepts in it, you know, are, are there. This um, almost 2000 AD feel that Cartmel, you know, famously brought into the show is, is writ through a, a number of these stories. And I just... I just think Greatest Show just exemplifies it. And, it. and it's got some nice location filming as well. Um, of course, filming in the tent made it look uh, pretty good. But that's that's not really making it indicative of the series. That's just a reason I like it, I guess. But uh, what about you, chaps? What do you, what do you like? The great thing about the McCoy era is that uh, it's so varied. It's like the Hartnell era. It's so varied. If you look at like Remembrance in Season 26, people who don't like the McCoy era always go to Remembrance in Season 26 and say... They're really good because I think it more they more align to what the traditional era of the show uh, was in terms of the Pertwee and early Tom Bakers. But in terms of what a typical story from this era would be, then I'd, I'd have to plumb for an oddball story. And uh, you actually just mentioned it before. It was actually the Happiness Patrol. Mm. Because when I think of McCoy, I do think of the more left-of-centre type of storytelling. And again, as you mentioned, Happiness Patrol definitely is a case where the script is fantastic but sort of let down by the um you know the execution you know a planet where no one smiles is straight out of the comic book really isn't it yeah and you added a large dose of uh anti-thatcherite rhetoric i think Carbell, it's interesting now i think it's great now that he's getting the recognition he deserves he deserves now because at the time especially with the show was cancelled there was a general sense of oh look at the show it obviously failed but looking back now especially with you know in, in light with the new series I think there's so much good stuff in there and it's only taken me 25 years to really appreciate what was in there. Yeah, there is material with some real imagination happening that you just didn't see in the Baker era at no, all. Yeah, that's right. And, and that you might have seen sparingly in the Davison era, like something like Kinder, I think has imagination to it, you know, for sure. Mm-hmm. But when, you, when you're in this era, you're looking at stuff again, like The Happiness Patrol, like Greatest Show, like uh, Ghostlight. You know the ideas in these stories are just fantastic, and just show an imagination that's been lacking for so long in the in the series. If anybody hasn't read the Script Doctor book by Andrew Cartmel, get a copy. It's uh, enlightening reading. My Rob, now this may be because I read a lot of the Virgin books, but when the early Virgin books, but when I think of the McCoy era, putting aside what I largely see as a weak first season, what I think about the McCoy era is the idea of the you know the so-called Dark Doctor, the manipulative Doctor, the Doctor playing you know three-dimensional chess and all that sort of thing. So the story that exemplifies, or I find more typical of that uh, strand running through the, the, those three seasons, is the Curse of Fendrick. Mm. I mean, obviously it's got Ace, so it's a, it's a, you, you're sort of your typical uh, I identify Ace more than than Mel with the, with the McCoy era. 
it's the doctor uh the, the darker doctor manipulating events uh, in the background uh, even though he sort of fumbles it towards the end um it's the doctor prepared to use ace as he has i think before to uh, affect a victory um and it's just that culmination of that storytelling uh, through that era uh plus it's pretty good and that letter that, that last two-thirds of that era uh, have got some very strong stories and i think this is one of the stronger ones in that in that uh, in that sequence so uh, the curse of fenric for me does that uh, story in that season do you correlate that a bit to the early Tom Baker years in terms of what it was trying to do, or the the tone a bit at least, or not really? You you could draw a line between you know some of the elements in the Curse of Fenric and some of the things that were done say in, in in Genesis of the Daleks. I mean, there's definitely the Nazi theme and and and, and that sort of thing, but uh, there is a there is a fourth Doctorish feel a little bit, but I, I wouldn't lean on that too heavily, no. Yeah, for me, it still feels like a traditional kind of story. It's not one of the more out there, what we were calling the imaginative stories a moment ago, that trio of stories. It's got imagination in it. It's got, it's got a great plot. But it, it does sort of hark back to an older sort of storytelling from Doctor Who as well. So, yeah, I, I can see the Baker link. I think my problem with, with this sort of uh, format is that I am going... I'm, I'm influenced... In, in choosing a, a topical or a typical story by what I what the sort of storytelling I like so I mean you know I, I like stories that are a bit darker a bit more grittier and I, I think the stories that I've, I've picked up on are all those things that might not necessarily as you say uh, be typical of, of the McCoy era for instance yes I, I grant you those earlier sort of out there more colorful stories um, but for me I, I just sort of lean towards the other style of tor- storytelling um, again. Uh, I think we're all about to scream <laughs> snap, are we? Or bingo? Yeah, exactly. I think so. Yeah, the TV movie. No one's going to say night of the Doctor? It is good, but, you know, we probably ended up in a discussion of how he should have been the War Doctor. We'll get to that later, Rob. Oh, good. Oh, we are going to go down that path. Good. All right. We've got a letter about it, so... Uh, oh, yes, that's right. Yes, yeah, so we'll, we'll go through that later on. So, uh, Mr. Blink and you'll miss him, Eccleston, Rob. Again, with only one series, it's so hard. Yeah. I think... I think I'd like to go with something like The Doctor Dances, uh, simply because it's got that crossover of companions. It's got Jack and Rose in it. Mm. It's a very well-written story, of, of course. And it just has a nice, darker kind of feel to it, literally, because a lot of it's set at night time. And that's a hard one for me, but it, it, that just sort of says Eccleston to me, The Doctor Dances. I was actually going to snap that. Oh, good. Because it's the same for me. I was actually going to put Parting of the Ways, but... If I think about a traditional type of storytelling, I think definitely uh, those two those two stories definitely are it. Uh, although I mean, Parting of the Ways for me is the most subtle of RTD's uh, end of season finales. It's a shame we didn't do that second year, eh? Things could have been a little bit different. I know, and when, and when you see him in the media now saying, "Oh, I wish I didn't leave. I yeah. wish it was different," you think, "Well, why didn't you do the fiftieth?" <laughs> You know, it was there on a plate. You didn't have to work with the people you didn't like working with. It was all there to come back. You could have had a fun time. You know, if you really mean that, if you really, really mean that, that you would have liked to have stayed longer, why didn't you do the 50th? I find that very weird. Uh, my Rob. Yes, my Rob. I've gone with Father's Day. Oh. As typical of the, the, the Eccleston era. Obviously, it's Rose, um, so she's she's dominant throughout the series. I... It, because it's such a heavy focus on the companion, and in the new era, the the emphasis has gone away from the Doctor to his companion. And I, I find that Father's Day with 
you know, Rose dominates the story um, as she does in a lot of the other stories in, in, in the first season. A lot of what goes on is because of what Rose wants or, 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 or what Rose gets herself involved in. So, you know, Rose averting her father's death changes history. So we now have to deal with the consequences of that. It's a very, it's typical of this, you know, first uh, year where it's heavy on the emotion and it's heavy on, you know, Rose's inter-family relation or relationships. Uh, so I, I I went with 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 that uh, as as typical of Eccleston's era. When did the, the Eccleston era really sort of take flight for you? Was it after Dalek? Look, not having watched it uh, all of it uh, again since the first grand, I'd, I'd I'd say Dalek. Yes. Mm. What about you, other Rob? Yeah, absolutely. That you know, I was in, enjoying it, thinking it's great. Doctor Who's back. These stories are okay. But when Dalek came on, it was just a a step above it was actually two or three steps above everything that had been on before it and from there because then you go straight into um oh no actually you go into the long game from there so maybe that blows <laughs> my idea out of the water uh but not long after you go into um father's day and the empty child doctor dances you know boomtown is a bit of a dip for me but then bad wolf and parting of the ways are great too so it's definitely the second half of that series is generally better than the first absolutely yeah just going back to what i think you said mark about uh, if eccleston had stayed another year do you think the series would have caught the wave that it did with tenet from his debut because he has been in terms of viewing figures and media coverage the darling of the darling doctor of the new series hasn't he more than the other uh, three slash four. I don't think School Reunion would have worked as well with Eccleston than uh, what it did with Tennant. Because Tennant obviously had the emotional connection to when he used to watch the series as a boy. And I think mm. that's why, in some ways, that story does work. Uh, I think it work, it works well because of the Tennant connection in there. Where Eccleston, I don't think he's got that... He would have played it, obviously, and played it well. But it just, it just didn't have that um, fan love towards... Uh, Sarah Jane than what um, than what Chris Eccleston would have done it. I don't know though. It's a really interesting question. I don't think some of those stories would have worked with Eccleston. To be perfectly honest, I think Eccleston gave the series the credibility in the critics' eyes and the public's eyes. Yeah, en- enough to get the series established. And I think if he'd stayed on, uh, we wouldn't have seen the massive amounts of coverage because he would have been you know the the same actor in a, in a, in the second season. I think Tenet is critical to the show still being on the air, even if it's sort of an elongated wait for the next series or season. <laughs> what if um, Eccleston had done half of series two and then Tenet would have taken over? That would have been quite interesting, wouldn't it? No? Okay. Yeah, it would have been, inter- I mean, it'd been, it'd been an interesting idea. It would be interesting how they, how they carried off the execution and whether they were even capable of... Of hiding the fact, uh, no, they're, they're not capable of anything. Let's be honest. I mean, as we saw with the BBC store overnight, apparently they released all six episodes accidentally instead of just one per day. So yeah, uh, and and Marco Carmaggio, <laughs> you know, I've, I've got a photo of him pinned up here. He's my hero. Um, <laughs> I don't think anyone can keep a secret anywhere between London and Cardiff. We we just know that for a fact. So, speaking of uh, the Darling Doctor, Mister Irwin, what's your choice there? It's a tricky one because, again, there are, there are some good stories here. There are stories that are more my favourite. But I think in terms of what says Tenant to me, I'm going to go with another Moffat story and I'm going to go with The Girl in the Fireplace. It's got uh, some interesting creatures in it in terms of those clockwork droids. It's got uh, romance, which I think is probably pretty big in the Tenet era. We're talking about school reunion a moment ago. 
the way he looks at Sarah Jane, the way he acts with her, it is almost a romance in that story as well. And I think the Doctor flirting, the Doctor being romantic, uh, is very much a tenant thing. And I think this is probably one of the first episodes, aside from School Reunion, where that came out. So, probably stands out to me for that reason, head and shoulders above the rest, that romantic kind of angle. Yeah, I was just going to say snap. I, th- I think that um, Rob's absolutely right with uh, with the tenant era. Um, the t- typical story has to be the girl in the fireplace. Not for any particular reasons that I like, but... If we're looking at something that's typical of that era, um, then that's it. Well, I'm not going to snap on that. I'm actually going to go with partners in crime. I see the majority of the tenant era is actually quite lightweight in terms of its storytelling, and I think this one's actually fairly typical of the era. I think uh, if Douglas Adams were, was alive, he'd probably describe this story as mostly harmless. <laughs> you know, obviously the kid and cuddly uh, adipose uh, betray a deadlier threat, and they may obviously look to made to look that way, so keep the kiddies, the younger kiddies engaged. So, I mean, that's the thing you can say about the tenant um, stories, was that they were geared, obviously, for a younger, a much younger audience. I remember reading a review years ago, of the uh, from the screws of the world, remember that uh, August organ? Yes, it's uh, it compared. It said about the storyline was written on the back of a fag packet, which is quite ironic, really. Thanks, Rupert. In my opinion, the, the template for that story runs quite large through the tenant era, and of course, um, that story brought back the return of Rose, which I think was actually a massive mistake. It just completely destroyed the um, the emotional impact of her goodbye in series series two. I'm just having a thought listening to you, Mark. Do we think that Tennant handles the lighter stuff better than he does the heavier stuff? Uh, for, for, for me, the heavier stuff, he, he, he just it's very obvious that he's acting um, and it doesn't seem to come naturally, whereas the sort of the lighter stuff that he's doing, the sort of comedy stuff that you were sort of seeing in Partners in Crime, seems a more natural fit for him though that said if you watch Broadchurch he's basically one pill away from killing himself so um, and he seems to be able to do it there I don't know I don't know I think if you put him in season 17 and swap Tom Baker out and put him in this there'd be no real difference that's interesting mm. yeah but I, I agree I think he does better in the lightweight stuff um, when it, whenever he tries to do a big speech or sort of toughen up he I don't know whether it's because he's having to put on the voice and that sort of detracts somehow whereas if he was yeah. doing it in, in just his natural um, speaking voice, it might be a little different. But I think of, oh gosh, what was it? Uh, it was one of the Christmas specials. Voyage of the Damned, when he says, I'm a Time Lord. Oh, yeah. And it, it's almost like Frank Spencer, the way he delivers that line. And it's like, <laughs> oh, no, no, no. The abiding memory I have of, of Tennant's era is the camera coming into his face for the hero shot, his eyes going wide and his brow furrowing, and then he delivers this sort of deathless line. Uh, and it just a lot of the time it doesn't work for me. He's just clearly, clearly acting. And I don't know whether he feels comfortable with some of that rubbish that RTD gave him. You know, I'm a Time Lord, I'm 9 billion years old, whatever, I'm here to save your lunchbox. Um, <laughs> just, I'm a Capricorn. <laughs> Matt Smith era. Alrighty. Matt Smith's era is quite interesting. I think his his first series, I know people might disagree with this, I think his first series is the most consistent. Mm. And then after that, it all sort of goes a bit haywire, especially when we get to series seven. One constant I see across a lot of his stories, because this is a constant companion, is Amy gets a lot of airtime. Amy gets a lot of 
storylines, you know, so I think it's got to be something that's fairly Amy-centric. And although one of my favourite stories is Amy's Choice, I think I'd like to go with something like The Girl Who Waited as an example of a Matt Smith story, because it it is a very Amy-centric storyline. It's got some nice timey-wimey elements to it. It's uh, it's not a bad story either. And if someone asked me what's a what's a good Matt Smith story, it'd be probably one of the top three, maybe even top five stories. I'd I'd give them to watch. What's your top five? Oh, you put me on the spot now. Amy's choice would be in there as well. And this is really yeah. interesting because I don't like Amy as a companion at all. <laughs> if someone said give me like five really good Matt Smith stories, I'd I'd say Amy's choice. I'd say the girl who waited. Oh, I'd say Vincent and the Doctor. I, I think everyone's got to say that one pretty much. Um, Doctor's Wife? Doctor's Wife, absolutely. Yeah. Yep, I'd forgotten about that. And then one more. I don't know, maybe a quirky one. Maybe something like Closing Time. And none of those are written by Stephen Moffat. No, so I've gone for Moffat for the first couple of New Who Doctors, but not for Smithy. Mm. Even though Smithy's the one he's probably more associated with, of course, being the showrunner. Do you think he's a better writer or a better showrunner? Better writer, absolutely. Here, here. Without a shadow of doubt in my mind. You know, I think he's a fantastic writer. When he's just got to do one or two a year and he can really come up with something great, I think he's sensational. Interesting, isn't it? Hmm. Where did it all go wrong? Hmm. About the time he signed on for the 11th hour, I think. <laughs> no, no, no. I, I, I agree with Rob. I, I, I agree with Rob. I think Series 5 is very consistent and very, very good. It's uh, And I, I, this sort of ties into my... When I think about the whole Matt, uh, the Moffat era of the program, uh, I think the standalone stories unfortunately get left by the wayside because I think it's more the timey-wimey storylines that get the more focus, but in most cases not in the good way. If I have to think about a story that encapsulates timey-wimey across the Matt Smith era and vaguely worked, I'd probably have to go The Big Bang. I think Rob Lloyd said this about in our last podcast. He's very good on concepts. He's bringing it all together. I think, uh, in my opinion, that's where it just doesn't pay off. Uh, I think the, the Wedding of River song was just awful. Um, but I think The Big Bang is actually quite good but I think it would have been would it have been more satisfying though if the arc in terms of the crack in the wall was concluded at the end of the story I probably would say yes but then it wouldn't give him an excuse to do something later on when I have my series, series arcs I actually like them resolved at the end of that series and not sort of dragged on or left on for a year or two uh, later on I'd rather have that payoff earlier on as opposed to waiting two or three years and it's like a quick two second mention to go oh okay he's resolved that now and then moving on to something else. I agree, and this sounds really bad, but you you kind of forget from year to year what, what the storyline was in the first place. And yeah. when it's tied up in one series, you remember it a lot more. It has more impact mm. than three years on saying, oh, yeah, remember what happened three years ago? Well, here's, here's why. Yeah. No, that just doesn't work for me, at least. You know, maybe if I was a kid and my brain was more plastic or malleable or whatever the word is, and I was just absorbing everything, then I'd be quite okay with it. And I, I guess I was like that when I was watching the classic era. But now as an older viewer, I just need to have it wrapped up in one series. So I agree. And especially when they're trying now what they're doing, when they're referencing earlier episodes, I'll put a, a flashback, brings it back out. You've got to do that little flashback and then bring it, dive back into it, which I actually find quite jarring. But uh, look, I've got today still mates of mine say, what actually happened at the end of the Big Bang? Mm. Yeah, I just think in terms of you had to sort of encapsulate 
a a type of storytelling in in the eleventh Doctor's era. I think the Big Bang would be it. We're just timey wimey. Other Rob, when I think of the Matt Smith era, I tend to get very down on that era. I think it is the least successful uh, era in the new series. Um, I think that. I think that Moffat overindulges this particular Doctor. I I I think that the uh, that Amy is a massive drag on the series. I think that River Song is an even bigger drag on the series. I think that while Moffat a lot of the time sets up a particular is is you know a season's arc with very well with say something like the Impossible Astronaut, when it comes to um, resolving that, it, it 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 just falls to pieces in his hands. And for that reason, the typical story I find, uh, well, something that exemplifies, you know, the, this era, is the wedding of River Song. It is an utter mess. It is. Uh, <laughs> it, 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 ha- it has. It, it is an utter mess. It is a terrible, terrible waste of Matt Smith's talent. And this is what I find his era is that Smith loved. I mean, it's clear. It's clearly clear that Moffat loves Matt Smith. I mean, the the sort of the emotion that was displayed on the last day where he gave him a big hug and both men are man crying and all that sort of thing. That's a mistake for starters. But anyway, they <laughs> he loves him a great deal. And this story where he's unable to resolve anything to satis- to satisfaction, where River Song dominates the storyline, where Amy is all over it, um, it just. <sighs> It does not work for me, and for that reason, I think it's typical of the entire era that it just doesn't work, and Matt Smith in the role doesn't work, unfortunately. Yeah, it's a different way of looking at the era, and I can see exactly what you mean, because when I look at his era, you know, I, would, I wouldn't I would say that Matt Smith was not right in the role, per se, but I don't think he was well used across his era. I don't think he got great stories, so I can see that way you're looking at the era definitely. And in that sense, yes, what a fantastic story to encapsulate that. I'm speechless now. I've run out of words to describe my dislike. Well, no, no, that's not what we're doing here tonight. But um, it's just the whole. I think the whole era is a is a missed opportunity, and a story like this exemplifies that uh, completely. Look, there's un. There's undoubtedly good stories. I mean, I could go through and, and pick out three or four stories that I really enjoy, but I think mm. overall, it it um, it doesn't work. It, yeah, it's, sometimes it's hard to sort of pinpoint why something doesn't work, but I, I just think the overall approach that was taken by Moffat um, uh, just just doesn't work, unfortunately. But anyway, all right then. So we move on to the Capaldi era, the Twelfth Doctor. Or is it the 13th Doctor? I can't remember. I'm sorry. <laughs> this is the hardest one for me. In fact, I'm still tossing up names in my head as, as I'm speaking now. Again, the Capaldi era, and I love Capaldi as an actor. I love Capaldi as the Doctor. His era still feels inconsistent, though. When you look at that first series where he's mostly gruff and sometimes a little funny, and his next series where he's more funny, less gruff... Uh, the hair gets bigger. More bouffant, as Terence Dix would say. <laughs> more, more bouffant. Yes, the, uh, the the coiffure is 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 certainly higher. It's really hard to sort of get a grip on what is a typical Capaldi story. Is it where he's pseudo Malcolm Tucker getting around being angry? Is it where he's being funny? Is it where he's playing a guitar? Where is it? Is it, does it have something to do with Clara? Perhaps uh, wanting to be the Doctor. Perhaps the latter. 
you know, and, and I looked down the list of stories and I, I could just close my eyes and just point at one and I could probably make a case for it as much as any other. This is the hard, even including the Colin Baker seasons, this is the hardest one for me. Um, I don't know if you guys have felt that way uh, when you've been looking at it. But then again, us putting together any list is really hard these days. So you tell us what it, what it is. I'm going to go for Mummy on the Orient Express. Snap! <laughs> really? Really? Yeah, no. Seriously. Really? Yeah, seriously, I've got it here. Mummy on the Orient Express. <laughs> wow. I, well, well, tell me why. No, you tell me why first. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's got the the tone right. Uh, for what I think the Capaldi Doctor should be, but perhaps hasn't been <laughs> in the stories. Yeah. So maybe I'm sort of inventing what I think the Capaldi era should be or what I'd like it to be, and it's kind of best encapsulated in this story with the way he behaves. Uh, it's a good story too, uh, of course. It's a real gut thing for me. It's, it's kind of hard to put in words beyond the fact that this is how I think Capaldi should be but isn't always like. Mummy on the Orient Express for me was, you know, well, I, as I said before, Series 8 was great apart from the first two and, and the last two. And I think this one was really where Capaldi sort of hit the stride. He got that balance right, where I think in Series 9, he was sort of going over towards more, uh, turning up to 11 on the fun side and the more cuddly side, where I think he got the balance right here. I actually think his Doctor works really well at going back to the almost Troughton-esque base under siege type story. We got this one, close confined quarters, and just his whole disposition in terms of your next, your next, I just think it works fantastically well. Same with what was the uh, one under the base, under the flood, or was it called before the flood, or what was it called? Under the lake and before under the flood. Under the lake, yeah. I preferred the first episode of that because again, he works really well in that uh, base under siege type environment. And some of the one-liners about uh, you know getting the cue cards and, and things, I thought was quite funny. But in terms of storytelling approach, I think. Mummy on, a, on the Orient Express, and also Flatline as well. Probably Flatline you could have potentially put on there as well, but I think that is the most, I suppose, traditional story so far that I've seen of, uh, of the Capaldi era. Do you think in Mummy and Under the Lake he's a bit Tom Baker-ish? Yes. Mm, me too. With a dash of Pertwee. Yeah. Only a sprinkling. <laughs> but, uh, he has yes. the Pertwee bouffant on, so yes. Yeah, I, I think that's probably why it resonates, because he's more classic Doctor type, isn't he, really? He's got that balance right. He's not being the prick, but mm. he's not being the sort of, not buffoon, but he's, yeah, he's certainly playing up on the comedy. He's been told to soften it down. And, and fair is fair. I mean, he not only has he got the balance right, but Moffat has got the balance right as well. Um, this, his first season or series, is Colin Baker's first series done right. I mean, he's the first few stories. It's it, he does present an unlikable doctor to a, to an extent, and after the bollocking that Clara gives him in, in Kill the Moon, or Kill the Chicken Egg, um, there's a <laughs> there, there's a purposeful reevaluation of the character and the doctor. And this is this is the relationship for the the doctor and Clara that we see going through, where it's a it's a more softer relationship. There's a there's a bit more give in the doctor, um, and again. Uh, it, it, it is actually part of a really great run of stories during that uh, that first series. Uh, so for those reasons, I think it's pretty typical of uh, the, the Capaldi or Capaldi's time so far in the show. Um, yeah, so that's why I've gone with uh, also the uh, Mummy on the Orient Express. So is our hope then for series 10 that we get more of this type of storytelling? Well, the hope would be, but I, I don't think we will. 
No. I think if Moffat wants to stay engaged in his last year, then he'll probably change the tone of the, sh- of the series again. Because mm. I think you can, as you were describing before, there is a different... Uh, there's a difference in uh, series eight and series nine, isn't there? In, in the type of stories, and in in and in Capaldi's approach. So I think again, I mean, if if it's intended that Capaldi's era is going to be, uh, sorry, this is going to be Capaldi's last sh- series, then you can see Moffat maybe dialing it up to darker, again, you know, because Capaldi, it's in Capaldi's performance to give that sort of you know uh, grander, darker. Uh, more doom laden uh, performance, so they may go that way, for instance. But if it's just going to be a, a mere handover, it could be something else entirely. How do you, how would you see that sitting though with the the people he's going to be playing with, like Nardole for three or four episodes, and and even Bill, the way she comes across, would a would a really dark Doctor sort of suit that kind of companion? Well, now that you actually mentioned those two characters, no, no, no. I, I suppose it's a bit of wishful thinking on my part. But um, no, I don't think it would. I don't think it could work, unless the Doctor is going to push Nardle in front of a Dalek and, and escape that way. <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, and you're right, Bill. I mean, it, granted, it was like blink and you miss it sort of performance. Uh, it, it is hard to say how that you could go for a darker tone with those sort of people in the in the supporting roles. Yeah, I think it would be hard. Mm, very hard. But then, uh, if if Moffat is worried about ratings, he might want to go for a more tenant approach, which is a, a lighter. You can see that Capaldi starts darker, for want of a better word, and then the performance lightens up quite a lot. So we might even go lighter still, and hope to get that family audience coming back, because I think that for all that I enjoy Capaldi's performance, it's me enjoying it and not a not enough of a broad broad based audience. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Has the damage been done though? Possibly. Well, I mean, if you have the show off for a year, you're only compounding the problem, aren't you? Yes. Do we know why they're actually off for a year? Is it simply because Moffat can't churn out enough scripts at the same time for Sherlock and this? Wasn't it the Olympics? Money? Is it a question of dollars or pounds? In real terms, it's only about six months, though, isn't it? Okay. They would be back now if they were coming back at a normal time and then coming back Uh. in late March. So it's really only half a year, even even though people can rightly say... There's no Doctor Who this year except for the Christmas special. That is a year in terms of from series to series and when we would have been seeing it and when we will see it. I think it's only about six months. Ah, fair point, fair point. Mm. Apart from the Olympic excuse, was that the justification? I suppose, is that correct? Who knows? Could have been Sherlock, you just don't know. I don't think it's been, I don't know, it's been explained particularly well. But then again, it's from the BBC, so... And even when there is an explanation, it's laden with spin, so, you know, you, oh, can, yes, you can't really yes. believe it, so... Yeah, more spin than a clothes dryer. Well, there you go. That's it. That's our typical stories from each Doctor Zero. Any final thoughts on, on that topic? Any through line that we can see, or is it too varied? I like the way we uh, we all got bingo on the last one, even though I found that the hardest of all. I think that's nice. So there is something in that story that attracts A, us and be what we think is a traditional story. Yeah, and where we'd like to see Capaldi go, perhaps. Actually, you're right, you're right, Rob. That is, that is, I think that story is the sweet spot that they should have been aiming for more, especially in the second, his second series. Definitely. Because he's more approachable, and the, the balance between you know, Clara and the Doctor is, is, is far, for, far more better. It, it, it ends up becoming a really needy relationship, which I object to violently. Uh, mm. But at that point, it, 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 they'd sort of they the 
the lines were intersecting at the right spot, but uh, afterwards it sort of went awry. But anyway. And he had a great costume on too. I love that costume. Uh, I'm not a big fan on the on the hoodie and, and the uh, Starfield T-shirt. I really like him in that almost that classic Doctor silhouette that he wears as well. That's why I think it worked. Yeah, it's Hartnell-esque for sure. If you uh, either violently disagree or agree with our choices, please uh, contact us. All the usual communications, omni-channel details are at the end of the podcast. You've got mail. And our first letter is from David Dubos, and the subject line screams, John Hurt. If this was to commode and mayo, I start by saying long-term listener, first-time emailer. Anyway, just a line to say I love the podcast, even, especially, when I disagree with you. I must take you to task on one point. Since when is John Hurt non-canon? Now, I know you're not the biggest Stephen Moffat fans in the world. In my opinion, he's the best showrunner slash producer since Philip Hinchcliffe. But what he writes is canon, surely. Not least when we see him regenerate from Paul McGann and into Christopher Eccleston. Grumble over... Keep up the good work. Take it easy. David Dubost. Thank you, David. That email's pointed to you, my Rob. So do you want to talk about that? To me? <laughs> to me? <laughs> I think it's to me. Actually, no. Let's put it over to our guest first. What do you think about that? Do you agree or disagree? I think uh, there are two answers here. And one of them is it's possible to have head cannon. And I think in terms of head cannon, <laughs> it's quite all right to say he doesn't exist or he's not canon. Uh, there are some good reasons why he shouldn't have is- existed. Uh, indeed, he almost didn't exist if Eccleston had have decided to be in the 50th, as he keeps telling us he loves Doctor Who, he just doesn't want to be in it for some reason. Uh, also, the fact, I think the 8th Doctor should have fought the Time War. I think the fall of the nicest man in the universe to become a warrior whilst still in the same incarnation would have been quite cool dramatically. I also think he could have pulled it off around the time this was all happening. I think Moffat had said he was unsure that McGann could really do it. I think McGann could do it in spades. He's one of the best doctors who has played the role. So come on, you know, we should have had either the eighth doctor continue on and be the war doctor or have Eccleston come in and be the War Doctor, which was the plan. I still think that was a weird plan, because he's clearly regenerated at the start of Rose. He hasn't regenerated and fought the Time War, but that's a whole other story. So I think in terms of headcanon, it's quite possible to look at this and think, well, this almost didn't happen for XYZ reasons, and probably shouldn't have happened for ABC reasons. So I think a headcanon interpretation is quite valid. I think Doctor Who has been lucky in that um, there haven't been a lot of, through its production history, there haven't been a lot of missed opportunities. I mean... We all know the names that could have been the fourth Doctor, but we ended up with Tom Baker. Uh, so we've been lucky a lot of the time that the production team have made the right choice. This, with John Hurt being cast, is one of the few times that they got it utterly wrong. I've, I don't have a problem with John Hurt as an actor. He's fantastic. I don't have a problem with the canonicity of it. If that's what you want to shoehorn in, go for your life. But the choice of doing so, of, of, uh, of casting John Hurt, when it appears to have been done in a blind panic when the obvious solution has been wandering around since 1996 is one that beggars belief and still leaves me, uh, you know, bemused uh, to this day. Everybody knows my thoughts on this. Uh, Having John Hurt in it did not uh, increase its ratings. People were going to see it regardless. It could have been Basil Brush in it. Yes, McGann should have been in it. The fact that 
you know, from a merchandising point of view, the only people who really embraced it is BBC Books and Big Finish. But then again, if, if a second bit Doctor Who character farts, they'll do a 27 CD set on it anyway. So <laughs> uh, I don't think that's that's a shoe in It should have been McGann. And there should have been another way. I was going to say, do you know what really pisses me off about the whole thing? What's that? The way that Doctor as Hurt will say, I was I was so awful, I, I couldn't call myself the Doctor. And yet he's this twinkly old guy who just writes mm. things on walls with a with a gun. <laughs> and uh, we, we don't we don't actually see him do anything bad, you know, to to justify that line. You know, it's kinda cool. Like I was so bad I couldn't be the doctor. Okay, cool. Well show us that. And all we get is this twinkly old fart who, you know, is essentially the doctor. You know, I don't get it. I was bad because I pressed a big red button. Yeah, exactly. They've just released a Doctor Who clock, a physical Doctor Who clock. And, of course, they can't put all 13 uh, Doctors on there. So they just uh, they left all Doctor off again. So, look, he hasn't been fully embraced. Some people embrace him. Obviously, I don't. I've mentioned in the last podcast, I've retconned him as the new incarnation of Peter Cushion's Doctor Who. That's how I'm getting over it. But, uh, look, I will, I will no longer bang on about it. I think you obviously know my views. And, David, you've got your views, which are great. So... Yep, I think uh, let's let's move on emotionally. Okay, this letter comes from my co-host on the Doctor Who show, David aye, Kitchen. Aye, aye. Hey! Okay, come on, come on, back up the truck. <laughs> Dear Robin Mark, I enjoyed your chat about seasons 15 and 16 on a recent podcast. I'm a big fan of season 16, arguably no real classics, but many really good and enjoyable stories that I can very happily watch. However, the weak link is surely the Armageddon factor, which really struggles with the six-episode length. Whilst I enjoy many of the six-part stories in Doctor Who's history, I'd be interested to hear your list, either individual or collective, of top five six-parters that would be far better as four-parters. I'm thinking of stories like the Armageddon factor or the Sea Devils that are good stories with considerable padding and could be great stories in the shorter format, rather than something like The Mutants and Monster of Peladon, where the episode count really isn't the problem. Now, Mark, I have a confession to make. Richard and I have been seeing Rob behind your back. It's true! (laughs) We've even been recording a podcast with him. In fact, later this month, we'll be launching the Goodies Pirate Podcast, where we chat about each episode of the Goodies in order. As well as a general discussion, we also have segments looking for our favourite gags in each episode, plus a What Couldn't They Get Away With Today segment. I'm sure, like us, many Doctor Who fans are also fans of Graham, Bill and Tim. For more information, check out facebook.com forward slash pirategoodiespc or find us on Twitter at pirategoodiespc. PC. Perhaps, Mark, you'll join us to record on a few episodes. The Baddies with Patrick Troughton is recording soon. Regards, David. He's my co-host on the Doctor Who show. Did I? Hey, 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 hey! Back up the truck. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Dave, for the letter. Um, nice of you to remember us, old friend. In terms of your top five topics, why not? We'll discuss it at the Christmas podcast, mate. There you go. Thank you for that's our topic sorted out because we had no idea. Uh, in terms of the Goodies podcast, yes, I'll be delighted to uh, participate in that, in the baddies. I actually started watching the baddies and it is pretty bad. <laughs> Troughton's portraying it like the second Doctor on methamphetamine. It's really bizarre. <laughs> it's a terrible performance. It's just all over the shop. Now, speaking of all over the shop, it is now time for... We haven't done this for a while. Uh, it's the long overdue return of Who Knows, where we ask our victim... Uh, sorry, guest... Uh, Rob Irwins, who guessed the the eight Doctor Who stories in question based on comments left on YouTube. Rob, are you ready, son? As ready as I'll ever be. Put yourself in. Here we go. I love the first Doctor, even though the actor is dead. 
I think the Doctor's first incarnation should make an appearance in modern-day Doctor Who. Obviously, they have to hire a different actor, but it'd still be awesome. The the thumbnail, they look like the Ood. The the thumbnail, they look like the Ood. I don't know. Monoids? No. Uh, no idea. Really? Okay. The Sensorites. Oh, okay. They don't really look like the Ood. This random guy on YouTube reckons he does. <laughs> Even though the actor is dead. <laughs> they got sort of sh- shapeless heads and wispy beards and chairman mouse suits and things, don't they? They're the Sensorites. Okay, this is going to kill me, the second one. Sam Crazy Nat is dancing a jig. Imagine if this scene were part of a tenant era story. He'd probably be wearing far less and Tumblr would go wild. <laughs> is this in English? This is YouTube, Rob. <laughs> this is all verbatim YouTube comments. I don't make this stuff up. He's dancing a jig, and if it was the Tenet era, he'd be wearing less. The clues are in Doctor Order, so this is in the second Doctor uh, era. Dancing a jig. Okay, so Troughton's dancing a jig? Yep. Right. And and it was recently returned in 2013. Oh, it's one of those two. (laughs) Can you be more specific, please? (laughs) 50-50. Okay, let's say Web of Fear. It's Enemy of the World. Is it? Because he's dancing a jig at episode one. Oh, I can't remember that. Do you know, an interesting point, I've, I've watched it once. Once? Yeah, I got it. I watched it. I thought, okay, that was all right. Why only once? I've watched things like, you know, Mark of the Rani more often. I, I don't know. Really? Yeah. That's weird, isn't it? That is very weird, now that I say it out loud. <laughs> Maybe I should go and watch it. Is it because you're still in denial about it? Like, it's actually, I've actually watched it. Uh, if I watch it again, it might not exist. Maybe subconsciously. That's very... Yes, that could be it. No, I think I've only watched it once as well, Mark. Really? Maybe once and a half. I've watched it about three times. Very good. Uh, Speaking of this, looks like he's rubbing a dildo on his face as far as I'm concerned. (laughs) Oliver Gilbert and Peanut Mezzaline are the greatest enigma of Doctor Who. (laughs) Again, no idea. Day of the Daleks. Oliver Gilbert and Peanut Mezzaline were the awful Dalek voices in Day of the Daleks. Uh, So, so far... You are naught for three. Awesome. Next one. Tom Baker is a legend. There's a clue there. And that punch. Whoa. I don't know why, but I've always found Sarah quite sexy in this outfit. I read a review on a Doctor Who site once in which the gay author admitted he had actually had a per- had a personal mind-bending experience of being quite attracted to Elizabeth Slade and the Sarah Jane. Well, if it's Sarah Jane wearing an interesting outfit, it's uh, it could be Pyramids of Mars, but it, it could also be Hand of Fear. There was a punch. There was a punch. Remember the punch? Oh, Baker's punched a few people in his time, hasn't he? I'll give you a clue. It's in season 13. In season 13? It's actually Planet of Evil. Okay. So they they liked Sarah's outfit in that? Yes. Oh, okay. (laughs) Mid-70s fashion doesn't do it for me, frankly, so... No, It's all coming back. It's all coming back like vinyl records. I thought the dress in Pyramids of Mars was sexy, or the Hand of Fear outfit, but yeah. Mm. Okay. Mm. What about the Five Doctors? No. No. Only decent scene in the whole story. Seriously, this is a great goodbye that suits Nissa very well, but the rest of the story just blows. It's nice to see that the classic series could do emotion when it could be bothered. Well, Terminus, of course. Well done. One. Excellent. Excellent. One out of eight. You're on a a roll, son. Let's go. (laughs) I would give this a five out of ten. This isn't a god-awful story. It would have been actually pretty good if the monsters were better vagina face salads. It's okay, but the villains really bring it down for me. When they talk about faces like that, it, it could only be Terror of the Vervoid, surely. Absolutely. Okay. You're on a roll now, son. Here we go. Capaldi definitely took inspiration from Sylvester. And if you were to shoot, I would just turn into Paul McGann. So win, win, really. 
Now that's an interesting one. Capaldi took inspiration from Sylvester. Are we talking about Sylvester getting shot in the telly movie, or are we talking about a Capaldi-era story? This is what the youth of today are putting on YouTube, mate. This is why I don't like young people. Um, (laughs) (laughs) You see, I just don't get on with them at all. I'll give you a clue. Season 25. Then it's the Happiness Patrol. There you go. I'll give you one for that because I'm I'm taking pity. That's right. One down. 338 to go. God, no, please. That was a sympathy point. The following sentence refers to two horror movies not suitable for children and sensible people. Ladies and gentlemen, 28 Days Later versus Shaun of the Dead. But I love both movies very, very much. So everybody wins. Huh? I just think, what, Doctor Who as a zombie film? Um... So there's two clues there. Both actors mm-hmm. in this story appeared one in one film and one in the other. And they appeared in the Doctor Who story together. Oh, right. So we're thinking the long game. There you go. Okay. And that was like the long game getting that bloody answer to it. It certainly was. <laughs> okay, thanks first year of university when I took Latin. Now I can understand what an evil guy is chanting in Doctor Who. And that bald guy is the same actor as Pre in Game of Thrones. No wonder he's so creepy. Then possibly the Satan pit? Tooth and Claw. Tooth and Claw, fair enough. Yes, the monks, yeah. okay. Oh poo, I didn't see that hand reaching towards her neck at first. I'm also new to Doctor Who. What's that green light stick? <laughs> Alright, so it's Smithy. He's got his green sonic screwdriver. Hmm. And there's a hand reaching for Amy. Vampires of Venice? Flesh and Stone. Flesh and Stone, okay. Some reason, I've always thought the Daleks were related to an octopus. But if you love Moffat's work, that's fine and dandy. Whatever. But I can and will voice my opinion whenever and wherever it I please. Being critical of t- films and TV, whatever, isn't negativity. It's subjective criticism. The writing must be so clever to you that you can't comprehend someone else thinking it's mediocre. I guess if they're talking about Daleks and octopus or octopi into the Dalek? No, the switch is familiar. Okay. Fair enough. Is the torment over? <laughs> I hope so. For the moment, anyway. Uh, Rob, out of eight, you got four. And one of those is the charity one, but that's okay. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, that's all right. You still beat JR, which is okay. <laughs> These things can go either way. It's like exactly. Doctor Who trivia. When I listen to Progter Who, do you guys ever listen to Progter Who when they do their quiz? Some weeks I'm just on it and I get like all five right. And other weeks it's like, what are they talking about? I've got no idea. Now, before we go, I'd like to thank uh, Rob Irwin for making uh, his debut appearance on 42. Uh, It's been a long time in the making, but it's been great to have you on, sir. Uh, Really appreciate you coming aboard. Thank you very much. It was good fun. Before we go, we've got a podcast plug. Something is coming, something very wonderful and strange. A brand new podcast and a very different one. Most podcasters talk about Doctor Who. This one remakes Doctor Who. Every existing episode from every era of the show is being recreated by a motley international crew of ninny muggins using nothing but a script. Oh, hang on. No, they don't use any scripts. This is an improvised, dramatic and comedic reconstruction which can be played alongside the DVD or download in exactly the same way as a podcast commentary is done. It's called Doctor Who's Line Is It Anyway? And it's due to start on the completely random date of the 23rd of November. What happens then? Hmm. With a short introductory and explanatory episode the week before. Uh, it'll be available on iTunes, Stitcher, uh, and Audio Boom. Uh, to find out more, go to the Facebook page at uh, Doctor Who's Line Is It Anyway? Or follow them on Twitter, D W W H O S L I. 
and listen out for several familiar voices. Mr. Irwin, are you on that one? I'm not on that one. I got asked to be on that one, actually, and I just didn't have the, the time or the, the ability to be on it. So that's 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 okay. I like improvised comedy. And can I just say, that podcast will probably be the only podcast I listen to in commentary with episodes. You know, it's not something I normally do. I don't think podcasters make particularly interesting commentaries. But in terms of improvised comedy, like putting in new lines for what you're seeing on screen, I think that could be quite funny. And I've actually heard a little sneak peek of it, and I think it could be quite good. Yeah, we don't do DVD commentaries, do we, Rob? None. No. I cannot stand them. You know, I'm quite happy to say that publicly. I cannot stand them. Well, especially if we weren't involved in the production, so we haven't got much really to offer. So Precisely. Uh, you know, people with exactly the same knowledge, thoughts as me, I don't need to hear it regurgitated. <laughs> so before we go, can you please plug The Doctor Who Show? The Doctor Who Show is at uh, thedwshow.net on Twitter at D- the DW Show and on facebook.com forward slash the DW Show. I recommend it because it's only one of the three Australian Doctor Who podcasts I listen to. Uh, what's your Patreon ID again, Rob? <laughs> Don't have one, never will have one. Okay, so I've been Mark. I've been Rob. And I've been moaning. Keep punching! punching. You've just listened to another episode of 42 to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at 42 to Doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash 42 to Doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at 42 to Doomsday. Please check out our blog, 42 to Doomsday.wordpress.com, where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.